So just as a reminder, come Thanksgiving, we're going to take a hiatus from the Bible study just because of the season of Advent. There's enough going on, I think, for everybody that uh, we'll uh, take a break during the month of December all the way till, well, basically from Thanksgiving to New Year's. Um, so after New Year, uh, plan is to resume, although uh, we'll have to visit what times and how we do it just because there's some other things that'll start happening at church I mean, here. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, would, we would be here like 8, 30, 9 o'clock right. for quilting, but, you know, we could move that to... Okay, we won't start at 10 o'clock and go It won't hurt to experiment with a different time, too. I mean, we kind of have figured out which people are coming to this one and whether uh, another time or day would work better. Maybe a different day somebody else would come. Exactly. And uh, either way, it could only be temporary. We just uh, call it off for uh, quilting, too. But we'll see what happens when we, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But today, with uh, about uh, three weeks counting the day left in our ser before we take a break, I figure we'll go with a nice, solid Lutheran standby that's a very important topic about how, how to distinguish and understand the law and the gospel. And uh, you probably went through this in confirmation. I'm sure you've heard this distinction uh, over the years spelled out. Pastors like to revisit it from time to time just because it's so important. And I think we can underestimate how important it is as Lutherans um, because we take it so much for granted, we fail to recognize just how hard of a distinction it is to make. Um, on the one hand, it's a really important thing just because without it, the Bible is just not going to make that much sense, frankly. On the one hand, the Bible teaches that the law and the gospel are two very different things that God says to us that operate on very different logics. But um, it's also the case that if you don't really have a grasp of this, when you sit down and you read the Bible, you're going to start to think that the Bible has a lot of contradictory statements or that it just isn't very clear about some pretty big things like, how do I get to heaven? <laughs> because there are some verses you look at that say, how do you get to heaven? Well, you do what is right, you please God, you strive to keep the law, and you'll come to fellowship with God. God will declare you righteous, everything will be good, right? There are tons of verses that say that. And then on the other hand, you get all kinds of verses that seem to talk exactly the opposite. That you can't do that, that's impossible, the only way to get to God is by trusting in Christ Jesus. It just seems to flatly contradict each other, frankly. So how do you grapple with that? Well, you come to realize that the Bible is actually saying two very different teachings with very, two very different purposes. Now, I will also say, we teach this to confirmation kids. Confirmation kids can, by the end of just one or two classes, pretty regularly make a good, if I, if I give them a list of statements and tell them which one is law, which one is gospel, they can pretty consistently get it right after you help them understand what you're talking about here. This is not an intellectually hard concept to grasp. It's pretty easy on paper. But when you get down to the nitty-gritty of actually living the Christian life and living out your relationship with God, it is a very, very hard thing to do in practice. Like so many things, easy to learn in school, very hard to live out. So much so that uh, Martin Luther, for his part, actually went so far as to say, if anyone can distinguish regularly between law and gospel consistently and well in their life, 
that person deserves to be called a theologian. He says, I myself, um, though I've devoted so much time to studying the scriptures and no doubt have learned as much as many, of, many great educators in our own time, I myself am just a baby at trying to figure out how to do this. Because in the nitty-gritty of trying to deal with God and your relationship to him, it is so easy to confuse the two and uh, completely fail to distinguish properly in your own life and in your own relationship to God um, what the difference is and how to apply it to yourself and where to say no to the law, this is not where you belong, and where to say, here's where the gospel belongs. And on the other hand, no gospel, this is not where you belong in my life and in my thinking and in my feelings. It's very hard to do in practice. I would uh, guess that most of you probably struggle with it from time to time. One of my favorite examples, I don't, I, not favorite in the sense of this is such a great thing, but um, up in Minnesota, we had a, a member by the name of uh, Marvin. He was, uh, he, was a, he was one of those dyed-in-the-wool solid German Lutherans, like German in the sense of he just would sit in the corner, he'd fold his arms, and he wouldn't say boo. He, I don't know if his smiling muscles worked. I think I saw him <laughs> do it twice in four years. Um, but he was just a solid guy. He was there every Sunday. Uh, he'd, say, he'd ask really good questions. He'd say really good things. He obviously knew his stuff. He was obviously a very devout Christian and a very devoted Lutheran and a very uh, keen Lutheran. That is to say, he... He knew what he was talking about. He understood it kind of penetrated down to his bones. Um, and yet, on his deathbed, his kidneys started to fail. I mean, he was a pretty old guy. He, uh, he was not doing so hot, spiritually speaking and mentally and emotionally speaking, because he was convinced, or at least extremely nervous, that he was going to hell. Despite years and years and years and years, 80-some-odd, in Lutheran churches, despite being able to tell me exactly what the basis of salvation was. He came to something he did in his past, just came to plague him there on his deathbed. And he could not be sure that he was really a Christian, that he really had faith, that God could really look past what he did. And if that could happen to a guy like Marvin, well, why couldn't it happen to us? It's always at work. He is always at work, and he is very convincing sometimes. Mercifully, um, one of the very few opportunities I got to do private confession and absolution. And uh, I tell you, if you don't think there's a place for that, I'll tell you, there was a place for it right then and there. He got to die with a profound sense of peace, at least as he was expressing it. Clearly, he was much less agitated, much more confident that it wasn't that he had, that God wasn't going to judge him based on this particular failure that seemed in his mind to be unforgivable. Because his basis was that God was able to forgive even that, even him. Law and the gospel, hard to do when the devil pinches. So let's talk about what this distinction is. And we'll start uh, with a bit of review here. Uh, we'll start mainly this time talking about the law, what it is, what God does with it. Now, some of this, like I said, it's probably review, maybe from way back years and years and years ago, maybe from not that long ago. I just don't know what you, your previous pastors have taught or how often you've heard this. But uh, let's start pretty basic. When we say the law, what is it we're talking about? It tells you what you're supposed to do and not do. Okay, there you go. Perfect summary. 
Um, the law just tells you what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do. Lays out God's will for how you're supposed to live and in this world, how you're supposed to behave, and what you're not supposed to be like, right? Pretty straightforward. Just like a rule that I give my kids. Do this, not that. Now, uh, of course, have you, how many of you have ever read, say, books like Deuteronomy or Leviticus or gave it a try once upon a time? Yeah, that's too confusing. <laughs> it's a slog. <laughs> you know, that, that Old Testament stuff, I've got a book now, it's, uh, I, I don't know, it, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not the, the prayer, uh, portal to prayer, it's another little book, every day or something, you know, and uh, it gives you how you can read through the Bible in a year, you know, and I read, right, right now I'm in... Uh, I think it's in Jeremiah yet, you know. Right. But, you know, all the rules, you know, I mean, if one one person had this they could do, the next one, you know, they that didn't, that did not <laughs> do for them. But I, I don't know, and, and the books before that, I think they're just impossible to get anything out oh, of, you know. There, yeah. You know. I, there aren't too many Christians or... I don't think there's too many anybody who uh, opens up the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy and says, ah, oh, this is refreshing, clear, just a delight to my eyes. No, it, it's hard to understand. It lays out a lot of minuscule rules. It's, just, it's not like reading the prophets where, sure, there's some things that you don't necessarily follow, but you still get a good gist out of it, and it feels uplifting. Um, I mean, you go through Leviticus, just for example, the first several chapters are uh, just like the first seven chapters of Leviticus are all about laying out various offerings and sacrifices that uh, Israel and its priests are supposed to make. And in uh, some cases, mind-numbing detail, what they're supposed to wear, what they're supposed to kill, what they're supposed to do with the blood, on what day, at what time, in what place, who's not supposed to do this. And then it goes from chapter 8 to uh, a couple later about how the priests are supposed to be selected, what they're supposed to do and not supposed to do. Then it goes into all these kinds of regulations about what you do with infectious skin diseases, how you're supposed to purify yourself after having a kid, clean and unclean foods and what counts as a good food to eat, what counts as a bad food to eat, what happens to you if you eat the wrong kind of food or touch it, who you're not supposed to touch. They even have regulations about mildew. And that's not even get down to all of the sexual um, and marital rules that they have in those commands. It's just command after command after command about what you're supposed to do in these very specific situations. And uh, on the one hand, it's hard to read through and pay attention to because it just kind of starts rolling over you after a while, like, what is this all about? And on the other hand, it does raise a, a valid question. Well, if the law is what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do, right? This is God's law. God gives commands, says, do this, not that. Well, did God tell people to do this, all of these things in Leviticus? Pretty straightforwardly, yeah. So uh, when's the last time after you had a, uh, a menstrual discharge that you purified yourself for so many days with uh, certain kinds of activities and rites? That was all before Christ came, though. Okay, it was all before Christ came. So I guess we don't have to do that anymore, right? 
So does that mean I can just go and kill Sam? I mean, that was a command in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy too. Thou shall not kill. Also said, thou shalt, you know, if you have leprosy, do A, B, C, and D. I guess I don't have to do that, so I guess I don't have to worry about that killing command either, right? Christ came, let's kill Sam. Sam's hoping that's not the case. <laughs> no, I don't think I, I don't think that's that's the answer. No, well, right, that's not the answer, and I'm obviously being a little over the top. Kathy is uh, is is very correct. Christ has come, and that has changed a lot about our relation to um, certain laws in the Old Testament. And it's key to say certain laws in the Old Testament. Because as it turns out, when we say that there, that there is God's law, there are different kinds of laws that God gave in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Typically, we talk about three kinds of laws, um, just as a way of helping us think about these things. There's the moral law, on the one hand. What we would say, things that God intends for what, it count, what counts as being a good, decent human being in many aspects of life common to everybody. These are commands that just dictate universal morality. That is to say, this applies to all people of all times in all places. It's a law that's meant to apply to everybody. Um, laws specifically like, say, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. God didn't just say to the Old Testament priests, you shall not kill. He didn't just say to the king of Israel, you shall not kill. He said to all people of all times and all places, you shall not kill. And therefore, I, because it's one of the moral laws, the laws that God intends to apply to all people, all times, all places, I can't kill Sam. Too bad, so sad for everybody, but Sam? No. <laughs> Good for everybody, but especially good for Sam. Um, but then there are also laws that uh, were very specifically uh, intended for Israel as a political entity. That is to say, rules for how the judges um, and the kings and the princes and so forth should regulate the social life of the people of Israel in the nation of Israel in their life together. Things like how boundaries should be determined, what's appropriate to move a boundary stone or not. Uh, it, just does, it only applied to that specific situation of time while there was this kingdom of Israel. If there's no kingdom of Israel, it doesn't apply anymore, right? It's only for a... In other words, these laws were only intended for a particular group of people over a particular amount of time. As a, as a nice comparison, for instance, uh, what I'm talking about, how some laws can apply to everybody all the time and some laws only apply to some people for some of the time, let's take the command where uh, Moses said, or God said to Moses, take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy ground. That was a command given by God to Moses, right? Does that mean everybody should take off their shoes all the time wherever they are? No, obviously um, obviously, that was a command given to that specific person in that specific situation in that specific location and time. It didn't even apply to Moses an hour later. So God gives commands that only apply to certain situations, certain groups of people, and not to everyone all the time. The political laws, um, things about how the 
kings should decide, and magistrates and judges should decide cases, um, how they should rule the people of Israel, so on and so forth. That came to an end with the kingdom of Israel and with their kingship. They just don't apply anymore. Okay, makes sense? Pretty clear. Uh, then there's this other class. Similarly with the ceremonial law, that was not intended by God to be something that would go on forever and always to the end of the world, amen, for all people. For one thing, it was only commanded for the Jews, quite specifically. But on the other hand, as Kathy especially mentioned, and this is especially true of the ceremonial law, all of these things were only meant to foreshadow and point to the coming of Christ and to prepare for his coming. When Christ comes, they very directly no longer apply. Christ has come, and so the purpose has been fulfilled, and their applicability goes away. Even the people of Israel no longer need to follow these anymore, precisely because now Christ has come, those laws have, so to speak, now gone out of effect. Um, for instance, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I mean, there's all kinds of verses we could go through. The whole book of Hebrews practically takes up this theme, that the Old Testament ceremonial law was pointing forward to and fulfilled in Christ. But this gives us at least a, a very quick summary of what uh, the book of Hebrews covers in great detail. Let me ask you a question. Sure. On moral, you got C331. Oh, <laughs> good point. Um, I think I meant to say Galatians, but now I'll have to look. Well, you know, I just look because... Uh, That's my bad. There, there's 33. 31, lots of voices. Yeah, there's a lot of chapter 3, verse 31s in the uh, scripture. I gotta, it wasn't Galatians, I gotta remember where I was trying to go now. He's not under moral law, so I don't know it was a uh, Old Testament thing. It was a New Testament verse. I just can't remember now which uh, verse I was trying to point you to. Let me, uh, oh, right, right, right. Let me see. Let me see if, uh, Okay, uh, I think I was meaning Romans 3.31, where Paul writes, Do we then nullify the law, um, specifically the law that he'd been talking about, about uh, how we're supposed to be good people in God's world? Um, it says, not at all, rather, we uphold the law. So in this case, Paul is talking about what we would call, what we're calling for the purposes of this class, the moral law. It's not that it no longer applies. In fact, Paul goes on to say, because of faith, we're even upholding the law, the moral law. We carry it out. But uh, go to Colossians 2, 16 to 17 to, talk, to see the ceremonial law. All these regulations about how to worship on the Sabbath, how not to worship, what sacrifices to make, and so forth. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. Reality, however, is found in Christ. All right, so very clearly, Paul is he's talking to people who uh, are being condemned by, say, Jews, who are saying, you're not being good, faithful people to God because you're not celebrating the Sabbath the way the Old Testament told us to. You're not celebrating, uh, you're not celebrating the religious feasts like the Feast of Booths, the Feast and all of those that were spelled out in the Old Testament. Um, so clearly you're, you're disobeying God and you stand condemned in his sight. Paul is saying, don't let, peop 
people uh, judge you based on those things or eating unclean versus clean foods. All of that, as he explicitly says, and again, Hebrews is just a whole long book on this theme, because they were meant to foreshadow Christ. They were only intended to last up until Christ came and fulfilled everything they pointed to. After all, all of those Old Testament things, those ceremonies, were meant as ways to express, first of all, our, the people of Israel's unique relationship to God. Second, to prepare those people for the kinds of things that Christ was going to do. Namely, um, make them pure in, Christ's pre- in God's presence. Make them acceptable in Christ's presence. Um, bring them in, make them worthy of drawing into Christ's presence. All of those sacrifices and feasts in the Old Testament were meant to foreshadow God's willingness to do that for the sake of Christ. Make sense? And so now that Christ comes, there's no point to them anymore. What about the, what about the people that profess they are true Jews and don't believe in Jesus? Are they still doing all this stuff? Um, well, it depends on which group of Jews you're talking about. Uh, I won't get into the uh, nitty-gritty of different, uh, I guess you'd call them denominations of Jews, um, but... There are certainly, uh, shall we say, very uh, heavily conservative, uh, I should say, orthodox versions of Jews that um, basically follow the path forged by the Pharisees. Obviously, they can't currently do a lot of the things required in the law because there's no temple. So they're just prevented from having the priesthood offer sacrifices, although one day they hope to get back to that situation. So in the meantime, they try hard to follow all of the other laws in the Old Testament that you can do without a temple. Um, For instance, uh, you may be interested to know that there are hotels in uh, heavily Jewish communities that have a Sabbath mode on them, and ovens that have a Sabbath mode on them that prevent you from doing things that would allow you to break the Sabbath, like cooking certain hours of the day or so forth. But uh, point is, there are definitely groups of Jews who try very hard to keep the parts of the Old Testament ceremonial laws that they're capable of keeping without a temple and without a nation of, or without the political kind of entity that Israel was in the Old Testament. So these people that are uh, Jews for Jesus, are they falling away from the old Jewish customs then? And- well, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I know what Jews for Jesus is about well enough to speak to that. My suspicion would be that they probably keep several of the old te- of the Jewish traditions, but they're not wedded and devoted to them in the same way. But that's just a suspicion. I don't know well enough. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I just know that there are, there is that group of people, right. or, you know, those groups right. of people, but I don't know either. Right. They're, uh, whether they've completely throwing out the Jewish thing. Well, I know they must, because I know uh, they, uh, we even had a, a, there was a time where I went to a Seder meal hosted by Jews for Jesus, where they explained how they, they still celebrate the Passover meal, but they uh, reinterpret its significance, or rather they, they draw lines between what's going on in that meal and uh, how Christ has come and fulfilled a lot of what that is pointing to. So I don't think they've thrown it all out, but I can't speak to how rigorously they try to keep them all either. And they certainly, I don't believe, 
they assert that you have to do all these things if you're going to be a good Christian. They're not like the Jews say that Paul was writing against in Galatians who were saying, if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to be a good Jew, and that means you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the Old Testament feasts, you have to do all this other stuff. They, they clearly don't assert that because they're not clearly condemning every other Christian who clearly doesn't follow Jewish practice. We were at a church in uh, someplace in Texas where we worked, and there was a man there, a member of the congregation, and his wife it was, a, it was a Jewish person. Sure. I mean, she was a member of it. I mean, she would come Sunday mornings all the time with him, you know, and I don't know whether he went with her when they had Jewish things, but I mean, you know, like, like at her, her Christmas thing, it, it was Jewish stuff that was set up, you know. Right. You know. Yeah. But no, I, I can't speak to, to a group but, like but that or I an mean, individual I, I, like that. I wonder, you know, what, what was her thinking? I mean, is she going along with some of this, you know, right. Lutheran stuff and, or just... Right. And it's, it's just worth mentioning that in, in Judaism, just like in Christianity, there's a huge range of different viewpoints taken. Um, very briefly to get out, there's three big, I guess, divisions that people tend to fall in. There's the Orthodox Jews, the Conservative Jews, and uh, the Reformed Jews. Reformed Judaism is very much kind of let go of, old, of a lot of the Old Testament stuff. And kind of basically, I guess what you'd call liberal, it's kind of like the ELCA version of Judaism, where uh, they, they don't really hold it was the word of God for all times. They don't really think you need to do all of that stuff. It's mainly about being a good person and loving other people and uh, that kind of stuff. So a person in that situation probably doesn't celebrate any of the Jewish stuff anyway, or at least leaves a lot of it off or has a very loose interpretation of it. But if you go on the other extreme, who knows? They might see it as anathema to even walk into a church. Yeah. Uh, so, point being, there could be lots of things going on in that person's head. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's certainly a, a possibility, given the range of stances of Jews toward their own heritage and toward the Old Testament. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, circling back to the point here, there are three basic kinds of laws God gives in the Old Testament. Moral laws which apply to everyone of all times and all places, unless, of course, God gives a specific exemption for it for whatever reason. I mean, God can make exceptions as he decides, but by and large, always applies to everyone all the time. Things like, for instance, the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, um, don't misuse the name of the Lord, so on and so forth. Ceremonial and political laws, which are only for a particular group of people for a particular time, um, particularly as a way of preparing people for the coming of Christ. Now that Christ has come, they don't apply to anyone, anywhere, anymore. All right? So that's just something to bear in mind. So if somebody ever tells you, well, why aren't you stoning the homosexuals <laughs> um, if you're a good Christian who follows the law? After all, doesn't that what uh, Leviticus says? Well, yes, that's what Leviticus says. But that law no longer applies to us. We are not required, as a matter of faith, to stone people who break the Sabbath or have sexual deviance or dishonor their parents or commit adultery. Any questions about that? 
That's just a helpful thing to bear in mind when you're, trying, when you're trying to make sense of the Bible. And there are no shortage of people who say, well, you're being inconsistent because I can point to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and all these Old Testament commands that say you should do this, but I don't see Christians doing that. A very fair biblical answer is to say, yeah, and there's a reason Christians don't do that, because Christ came and fulfilled all of those things that those pointed to, so they just don't apply anymore. To fulfill, to do them as though they applied would almost be a rejection of what the scriptures actually teach. Make sense? So let's uh, get into uh, more familiar territory from uh, what we learned as we're reviewing this. The moral law, especially, although it's true in all of these cases, when it applied, so two Old Testament Jews, um, or is Old Testament Israel, this would have also been the case, but now especially this is the case only with the moral law these days. What are the three uses of the law? That is to say, what does God use the law to do? There's three big things. Do you remember those? I know it's a rule. <laughs> Starting at the bottom, huh? <laughs> doesn't have to be in order. Mirror. Okay. Good job. Three uses of the law, um, as we like to summarize them in uh, confirmation and uh, for a lot of other purposes, because they're easier to remember. Curb is the first use. Second use is mirror. Third use is rule. What do we mean by this? Well, by curb, we mean that it curbs bad behavior. Uh, so like the curb on a road, what is, what's the function of it? Well, so that when you try to, when you accidentally veer off toward the sidewalk, what happens? Bump. <laughs> oh, shoot. I'm back on the road. Um, basically keeps you from doing um, more horrifically evil things than you would do and uh, puts you more or less in a lane, so to speak. So it's not just wildly off the rails. The, uh, or the example I gave with my uh, confirmation kids, you go to a bowling alley. You ever see the people with the cheater bumpers on the side? <laughs> so they cannot get a gutter ball. It's actually impossible unless they're really throwing that ball up in the air. That's kind of what we're talking about. It doesn't guarantee you're going to actually get a strike, but it makes it very hard not to knock down at least a couple pins. They're curbs. That's kind of what the law in the first use does. So that rather than so that uh, God uses the law to prevent me from going on a murder rampage, um, instead I'll just get really angry at people in my heart, which no doubt is still bad. <laughs> not exactly what you call a strike for good behavior, but certainly less destructive. <laughs> than uh, actually murdering people around me, right? Mirror. Well, what does a mirror do? Reflects what you're doing. Yeah, it reflects what you look like so you can see yourself and uh, know what you're actually like and look like. That's what the law does and what God uses the law for. So, uh, again, um, shows you whether you're doing a good or a bad job. And for the Or another way of putting this is also to uh, make it the point even more... Because it never actually says you're doing a good job, as it turns out. It accuses you. It shows you what you really are, what your behavior and your heart and your thoughts and your feelings and your desires and your emotions. It shows them what, how well they actually have lined up with what God's word says. And also shows what you deserve as a consequence. So, for instance, in theory, 
uh, if the if a priest at the uh, temple was doing the perfect job uh, doing the sacrifices, not just with his hands, like going through exactly the regulations that God said, using the ceremonial law as an example here, but also from his heart not thinking, oh, 150th cow today, man, I'm tired, I wish I could stop, but actually thinking, 150th cow today, this is amazing that I get to serve in God's temple and serve God's people all the way through. Um, the law would show him, you're doing a good job, priest. Keep it up. You deserve blessings. In fact, though, it will show you, you may be keeping an okay on the outside, but on the inside, you're doing a pretty crummy job. And so it always shows you, and here's what you can expect as a consequence, the same consequence that all criminals against the law deserve. It shows us our sin. Uh, so, the, and as we'll talk about later, we'll see the law always does this to some degree. God always intends the law to accuse us. The law never doesn't accuse, um, unless we're ignoring things that it's saying to us. Uh, it, it might do other things, but it always accuses. The third one is... Uh, Kind of a rule. So that's, uh, let, after you become a Christian, you have faith, you love God, you, you, you wonder, well, what can I do to show my gratitude to God? How can I show my thanks? How can I serve this God who has been so good to me and has made me a new kind of person? Um, well, it says, do these things. And that's pleasing God. It's a guide to show you what kind of life actually pleases God. All right, pretty straightforward, right? Let's dive in to uh, each of these uses just a little bit to see how they work a little more fully. Um, let's start with the first use of the law, which, as you said, is this curb meant to restrain sin and maintain a certain sense of order. Uh, why doesn't somebody look up Romans uh, 1, 28 through 32? And somebody else uh, look up Romans 2, 14 through 15. And one last person, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They do not continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. All right. One of the reasons I chose this, which is obviously God straightforwardly condemning through Paul, a whole group of people who are just, they know what God tells them to do, but they um, knowingly and perversely continue to do what God forbids. Now, on the one hand, that's obviously doing some accusing very straightforwardly. But uh, as a person who's hearing Paul preach this law against those people, uh, what what's one of your what would be one of your immediate reactions? Probably something like, "Well, gosh, I don't want to be like those people. <laughs> I don't want to to have uh, God's righteous decree uh, go against me. I don't want people to think of me as a murderer, as a ruthless, as all these other horrible things." 
And so what am I apt to do when I hear a list about that person who's doing this is this and this and this and this kind of person? Well, the same way shame tends to work in a lot of people. Well, then I'm going to try hard not to do any of those things, right? When, God's, when Paul speaks the law saying what God requires and how people are failing, God is also able to use it to curb the behavior of those who are hearing overhearing this. They deserve death. They're also being harangued in this horrible way. I don't want either of those things. Therefore, I'm going to try to not be like them. It curbs my behavior, right? To avoid the punishment, to avoid the uh, condemnation. And incidentally, uh, verse 32 also illustrates that uh, God gave the law um, and the judgment that says I'm threatening death in theory, to curb their behavior, to keep them from doing all of these things, but they're obviously ignoring the curb. So this also goes to show that just because God sends the law to curb evil behavior, does it always actually curb the evil behavior? Clearly not. Um, there are still people who blithely throw, go ahead despite the consequences that they should know are coming and despite... Um, the obvious intention to get them to see you're doing really bad, really destructive things, and bad things are going to be done to you as a consequence, therefore get in line. Uh, that's the intent. Curb it, but it doesn't always curb them. So that's why I picked this, kind of show two aspects here. One, that even when you're doing accused accusations, that can serve to curb others, and that just because the law comes to curb, it doesn't mean that people are uh, sensible enough in their sinfulness to actually be curbed. Uh, let's, how about the next one? 2, 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have a law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All right. God says the law is written on people's hearts. By the way, it's not just the Jews who have been revealed the moral law. Uh, God has, in fact, written the law into our hearts, though our sin has dimmed our awareness of it. Nevertheless, uh, we have an awareness of, in the, of the moral law at some level, right? And Paul points out that uh, these Gentiles, these people who didn't get the revealed law of God, still have it on their hearts. And what does their and they also have this conscience. And what does this conscience do? Accuses them of right and wrong. Right. Sometimes it accuses them. Sometimes it excuses them. Now, uh, take the law in your own heart. Have you ever been faced with a decision where there was something that seemed pleasant or would get a good outcome, but your conscience told you? It's probably not a very good idea. <laughs> sure, everybody has that experience. What's your conscience doing there? It's curbing your behavior. The law written on your heart prevents you from doing uh, an overtly wrong thing through your conscience, right? Curves. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, okay. Okay, there you go. So, um, 
What do you think Paul is telling them this for? Why is he, po- why is he making this point that uh, all of these kinds of people who persist in this kind of behavior, adultery, idolatry, slander, and so on and so forth, they won't inherit the kingdom of God? What, is, what do you think Paul is hoping to accomplish by telling them this? Change ways. All right. Uh, again. You know what the consequence is. You won't receive the kingdom. God says people who do that won't receive the kingdom of God. Therefore, hopefully the, the goal is, well, gosh, I better knock off doing those things if I am doing those things. And I better continue to avoid those things if I'm avoiding those things. Curbs the behavior. All right, pretty straightforward. But uh, good to see that we don't just pull these categories out of thin air. This is just, these three ways of, that we talk is just meant to reflect the, th- the things that actually happen in Scripture. Moving on to, I guess, B in that uh, Roman numeral three there. Can you think of any examples about how God's law functions this way today in, in, our, in our own day-to-day world? Somebody... Uh, does something wrong to you, well, you always want to try to get even, but you know that ain't right, so... Okay, right. Your heart definitely wants to get even, but you know that revenge is not exactly something, and it keeps you from going and getting revenge, and it keeps all kinds of worse things happening if you went and tried to get revenge, right? So, uh, in your personal morality, it still obviously uh, has an impact. It makes you make better decisions that lead to better results, right? You could take a, a more mundane example about uh, God uses, say, police, right? He gives them the vocation of enforcing civil laws. A lot of those, at least several of them, kind of vaguely reflect the moral law, right? So, you shall not steal is one of the moral laws. There are civil laws that say pretty much the same thing. Don't shoplift. Well, why don't people go and shoplift? Might get caught and have to... Might get caught. Not trying to get political, but just to uh, give an instance of how it's not just that people aren't bad enough to steal, but the law actually curbs uh, in certain cities in the country. They've uh, raised the limit of what counts as a... uh, actually prosecutorial kind of criminal shoplifting. Uh, More bluntly, they've made rules in certain cities in California that say if you steal anything less than $950, you're probably not going to get prosecuted. And you know what happened as a consequence? Stores like crazy are shutting down or limiting their hours because people walk in broad daylight in front of a packed crowd and just start shoving things into a bag and walk out. Why? Because they know they're not going to get in trouble. (laughs) And they don't. Because there's not criminal activity anymore. Put that in a law in a different state where it says, you get your nice Walmart signs, don't you know that shoplifting any amount is a prosecutorial fine? You can get prosecuted with a $25,000 fine and 10 years in prison. Well, why don't people shoplift as much in cities like that as in apparently recently cities like those in California that have done that? For the obvious reason. (laughs) The law and the consequences it threatens limits their behavior in pretty profound ways. It keeps order. It functions obviously in so many ways today. Now, how might somebody think that this, uh, this forcing external behavior, this, uh, I suppose, trying to keep your external behavior at least in a certain line is a good basis for salvation? In other words, 
Have you ever met somebody who says something like, well, I'm a good person, I pay my taxes, I, I try to help out people when they need help, I don't do anything overtly wrong, so I'm a good person and, God's pro- and I'm, I can be sure I'm going to heaven. Talked about that in previous Bible studies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know some people like that. You know, they, well, she's such a good person. She's always willing to help. You know, she'll take food, she'll whatever. You know. Right. And again, like we talked about, not denying that's good behavior on right. external behavior. And that's why, and it's plenty of clear examples we can point to. People say, I'm externally a good person. That is to say, I'm not overtly. Um, murdering people. I'm not overtly stealing people. I'm not overtly just running roughshod over my parents. In fact, by and large, I, I, I do a pretty good job of doing the opposite of all those things. I help people out when they have need. I pay my taxes. I, uh, I, I take care of my parents when I drive them to the hospital. I, I make sure they're okay. I do lots of great things like that and very few overtly bad things. So you can see then people get this impression what the law has commanded, I seem to be doing pretty well. Therefore, God must be, I must be a good person who God will reward with heaven. So you can see how people use what this first function of the law, which is meant to just keep order in society between people in a bad way um, by saying, I've done all of this. Therefore, what else you got, God? I'm good. Think of that rich young man in uh, the Gospels who came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, do those. And what's his response? Nailed it. <laughs> Already got all those, Jesus. What else must I do? We know people like that. We see it happen. But it is a very wrong assumption, as we'll see when we move to the second use of the law. And we'll just read one passage here, uh, a nice lengthy one. Romans 3, verses 10 through 20. Somebody want to read those for us. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, misery, Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world led accountable to God, held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. All right. So... Pretty good, strong, harsh things there. What does Paul say that the law does to literally everyone? Accuses. Yeah, it accuses them. Not in the vague way of saying, I think you did this, but in the way of saying, you have done this, and it was evil. Or more precisely what it says is, no one does good. Not a single solitary one of you has kept the law. So, very clearly, Paul is trying to deploy the law to show people where they stand. In fact, that's overtly what he says the law does, one of its primary functions. Um, Through the law, we become conscious of sin. It's not meant to make you look at your life and say, oh, I'm a good person. 
I do a lot of good help for other people. Um, therefore, God must be happy with me. It does show you what God wants you to do. It does try to curb you from doing horrible, bad things and keep a measure of external, externally good behavior. But at the end of the day, it will always expose, at the very least, your heart as full of evil and absent of true good. Now, again, there are people who claim that that's not the case, that I am, in fact, a good person because the law says I'm a good person. Think again of that rich young ruler. Well, what does 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 8 tell us? You may even remember this off the top of your head because we say it frequently in the liturgy. I'll even get you started. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Exactly. <laughs> Which is another... Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where that line in the, the liturgy comes from. Straight out of John, 1 John 1, 8. Point B... <laughs> Uh, this isn't just to say that all of us have mistakes. Its point to be, is to say, the law will, the, if anyone says that the law does not accuse us and condemn us as sinners, he deceives himself. The truth is not in him. He is wrong. The law always accuses you of not being good enough to warrant all these blessings from God. And therefore, uh, the first use of the law is just chopped right off from being a possible means of justifying you before God, of saying, I'm really a good person, I'm going to be saved. Paul said that directly, and 1 John says, and if you claim you're doing that, you're wrong. <laughs> so again, the law very clearly is meant to expose us to the fact that we are sinners and condemned as guilty, and a good word I like to use more than sin sometimes because it seems clear to people, criminals. We are criminals is what the law tells us every single time. Um, which gets us to a question, what's the purpose of God using the law to condemn us? What purpose does it serve for the law to always come to us, um, even and especially when we're pretty convinced we're decent people, and say, no, not by a long shot. In fact, you deserve condemnation, death, and hell. She help us recognize our way of doing things. It's to help us see the truth about ourselves. And God has a very important purpose in mind when he, does, when he wants to bring us to see the truth about ourselves. Um, it's not just so that he can sit up in heaven and point his finger and say, you evil, wretched people, get out of my sight. Although he'd be fair to do all of that. Um, but it's especially, as we're going to see going forward, meant to help awaken you to the fact that you are in a world of hurt by, of your own making. And if something doesn't come to change the situation you're in, you're out of luck, people. You're going to come to death and hell. And by the way, trying to clean up your act isn't going to actually help you. Because A, you're already a criminal. Um, the person who murdered a baby isn't suddenly innocent of murdering the baby just because he stopped murdering babies from that day forward, right? The guilt is still there. The crime is still done. The damage lingers. Um, even if he did be, become better. But B, not only can, does it not erase the previous guilt and the previous condemnation by suddenly doing better, but can you actually even do better? Are you capable of hearing the law say, do this and saying, from my heart now, I will do this always? As we'll see 
no, you're not even capable of doing that, so the law won't actually help. But let's move through very quickly in our last uh, few minutes this third use of the law, which is quite different than the other two. The first use, again, is about keeping civil order and curbing bad behavior, promoting externally good behavior. The second use is all about accusing and condemning you as a sinner so that you recognize your need for some external help, namely a savior. Um, and the third use is about, as we'll see, or as we already mentioned, it's about trying to help Christians see what pleases God so that they gladly do that. Romans 12, 1 through 2. We'll only read one of these just to get the point across since we're strapped for time. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Somebody want to read that one? Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay. So, uh, on the one hand... um, Paul is laying out uh, what Christians should now do and not do, but uh, on a very different logic than A, um, do this out of fear or out of a desire to uh, keep civil order, and uh, certainly not, he's not doing this as a move of, now let's condemn you for failing to do this and see how far short of this. He's doing it on a very different kind of logic. He's saying, This is what the will of God is. This is what pleases him. And because God has shown you mercy, do this. Just out of no greater desire, no no aim to justify yourself before God, but out of a desire both to do God's will and to better understand God's will. That is to be formed more into discerning and knowing what God's will actually is and how good it is. Do what God commands. In which case, what is the law actually, what is the law in this sense expressing to Christians who already have been justified to God in Christ? Simply laying out what pleases God, what is God's will. Not for any further uh, agenda, so to speak, than to say, you already want to please God. So here's how you do it. Giving you nice information so that you can very rightly and correctly do what God has brought you to desire to do. And as we'll see a a little, well, and um, let's just quick get into this question. Why would a Christian, why does a Christian seek to do what the law requires? I mean, people know that they do wrong things and they try to do better. Okay, on the one hand, yeah, they, they try to do better, but why do they try to do better? Is it out of fear of punishment? It's not out of fear of punishment, and it's not out of a desire to be good in the sense of show God that I'm really worthwhile so that he'll accept me. It's neither fear nor self-interest. It's out of simple love for God. I love the guy. Why wouldn't I want to do what he... Because I love him, I just want to do this. And as we'll talk about a little bit, where does that kind of motivation come from? Does it come from hearing the law? Well, no, it actually, as we've just talked about, the law, rather than motivating you to do good, condemns you of not wanting to do good for all the right reasons. It says you're doing these things for bad reasons, and you're doing bad things. 
So that everything you do is sinful. The law, therefore, by virtue of its accusations and condemnations of us, shows us that the law in itself cannot bring us to this desire, this true desire to truly obey God out of love for him. So where does that ability to do that come from? From the gospel, right? From God himself and his gift in Christ, which remakes us into different kind of people who, are, who actually desire from love, and not from any other interest, but from love to do what God commands. When you're in love with somebody, I mean, as speaking earthly, when you're in love with somebody, you want to do things to please them, whether it's your spouse, your kids, your grandkids. Right, exactly. Try to do things that, are, that make them happy. And... and not because you're trying to, uh, usually not because you're just trying to get something out of it, like, oh, if I buy my wife this flower, maybe she'll let me go hunting. <laughs> um, that calculation comes in. And that's uh, not necessarily what you'd call a pure fulfillment of the law. But when you genuinely love somebody, you do it just because my wife really loves flowers. And I really want to make her happy because I just love her so much. Here's your flowers. That's what we're talking about. And where that desire to love God like that comes, that just earnest desire to actually do what you know makes him happy, comes simply from actual love created by the gospel which renews you. We'll get into that a little bit more um, next time as we start to shift into the gospel. But uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.